welcome to Your Future Starts Now, the go-to podcast for extraordinary women who are ready to step into their next chapter with authentic confidence. I'm your host, Gia Lakwa, empowerment coach, motivational speaker, children's book author, and girl mom. Whether you're a corporate powerhouse or an entrepreneur, this show is designed for you. Your Future Starts Now is more than just a podcast. It's a movement, a movement towards rewriting the rules of success for high-achieving women. Are you ready to get unstuck and step into your next chapter? If so, you're exactly where you need to be. Your future starts now. Welcome to Your Future Starts Now. I'm your host, Gia Lacqua. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Dr. Gilly Khan. Gilly is a licensed clinical psychologist working in a private group practice in the Atlanta area. She specializes in individual and group therapy, focusing on neurodiversity, anxiety, and depression in youth. Over the years, Gilly developed a niche in the treatment of children and teens with ADHD and ASD, because in her opinion, there's no better or wiser company, as Gilly also has ADHD. Gilly, welcome to the show. So happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to get started and to launch this amazing podcast. Thank you. We hear a lot about neurodivergence these days, and I know that's a big focus area for you. So, you know, today we're going to talk a little bit about mental health in general for women, for children. Um, but let's just start with neurodivergence. Start with the basics. What can you tell us a little bit more about what is it? What qualifies as neurodiverse? Okay, so uh, when you hear someone referring to neurodivergence, basically they're referring to a category in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, and the category is called uh, neurodevelopmental disorders. And basically, um, the idea behind that category is that uh, the conditions in there are heritable and they're brain-based, um, which is different than for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, which does have a brain-based component, but also an external trigger. Um, and so for neurodevelopmental disorders, there are environmental factors that contribute to them, but they're mostly um, biological. And uh, some examples include um, ADHD, autism, mm -hmm. dyslexia, and so the neurodiversity movement uh, is um, not, so if you're neurodivergent, this isn't like a um, classification or something that's in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the, you know, the, class, the diagnostic classification system that psychologists use uh, in the US. Uh, but this is more of like a pop culture term, basically normalizing people who fall under that umbrella. Uh, so instead of considering it a disorder, they're considering it more a condition uh, where people who are neurodivergent just have different ways of thinking and processing information. Um, and they're only or they're mostly struggling because um, we live in a society where things are designed a certain way, especially the education system, and uh, we don't necessarily fit that mold. It's evolved, um, you know, over time, it sounds like from being more of a disorder to, you know, it's just a different way. People think differently, right? And recognizing that it's a spectrum. Exactly. Um, you talk a little bit about 
the educational system specifically. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, so um, the way that schools work, I guess, um, at least in the US, um, is, there's this very structured system. Um, and right now there's even more emphasis on, you know, having to sit still at a desk um, or, um, you know, having to pay attention for very long periods of time. There isn't a whole lot of movement involved. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that reading is taught uh, is not necessarily the way that a lot of children will, will understand it. And math too, by the way. I mean, I see kids in my practice where they they will describe their homework assignments to me. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> um, but then they're told they have to learn it this way. Yeah. And that's very frustrating because, you know, there are other ways to do the math and arrive at the same answer. But then to get the points on the exam, they have to do it the w this way, the specific yeah. way that they're taught. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I constantly see working with youth who are neurodivergent um, that they they hate school uh, because they also don't really understand. They say, I don't understand why I have to learn this information if I'm not going to be doing this in the future or if, you know, I'm so good at this thing, but like this other stuff is so hard for me. I just can't get it. Um, and so, you know, and they're I guess they're tired of hearing too lectures about why school is so important and how you know uh it's providing the basics or the um what did they say like the foundation right mm -hmm. the foundation for the mm -hmm. stuff we'll need to do in the future but the truth is and i'm speaking as someone with adhd um it's really hard you know to to focus on something that's just not interesting to you or that's just really hard to do um and it's true you don't necessarily have to use it in the future or in that particular way sure. that it's taught to you and you can still be very successful. Um, so, yeah, but it would be a large undertaking to change, you know, the school system because everyone has such different needs. It's a complicated yeah. issue. Yeah, it is a very complicated issue, but I appreciate you pointing it out because I think a lot of people struggle with it. I think uh, even neurotypical children, right, struggle with the traditional educational system in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and then you add the neurodivergence on top of that. And certainly I could see how that could complicate things significantly so because every child learns differently. And so um, it is a really complex but important topic. And I can't help but wonder, you know, think about ways that we can help to evolve and shift the educational and learning system. Um, and like you said, it's not going to be an overnight change, but maybe gradually over time. Right. Yeah. I think people also need to be a little bit more flexible. And um, we have such an emphasis on um, school in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I, this really goes in hand in, I think, like uh, in line with what your podcast is all about yeah. high achieving women and you know and it and it doesn't define you um and i think that parents and kids often lose sight of that um that life is not school or you know which college you got into yeah. um and kids feel a lot of pressure especially neurodivergent kids because they're comparing themselves to other kids who can process information more quickly or who are able to do things in the way that the mainstream school system um, has things 
set out uh, to be. So yeah, the challenge. Yeah, for sure. And you are very open about your diagnosis. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about um, your journey to diagnosis and, you know, I, it was recently, right? As an adult, you were diagnosed with ADHD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was diagnosed when I was 33, but for two days, I've been 34, unfortunately, I guess that's how life works. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> right. Um, thank you. Um, but yeah, so it was a few months ago. I don't know, maybe it was a year ago. I'm time blind, kind of. Yeah, so so basically, you know, for many years, I thought, I wondered whether I had mm. ADHD. Um, the problem is the way that ADHD is understood. Even now, a lot of practitioners um, are not really up to date on the science and um, the updates that are kind of occurring in the ADHD community. Um, and so they still kind of think have an old way of thinking about ADHD. And mm-hmm. the criteria for ADHD were developed mostly for boys. Uh, so when they were doing research and using that research for the diagnostic criteria, the sample sizes, the samples basically just consisted of boys. Uh, when I say boys, I don't mean men. I mean like child boys. Um, and so that's a problem for adults in general, uh, but also girls. So I remember in graduate school learning that girls are more likely to present with a predominantly inattentive presentation. So there are three different presentations to ADHD. There's the predominantly hyperactive, predominantly inattentive and combined presentations. Mm-hmm. Um, and predominantly hyperactive is basically what it sounds like. It's like, um, when hyperactivity is kind of the main issue, hyperactivity, impulsivity, inattentive is more like the daydreamer, space cadet, like slow processing. Um, and then combined is both. Um, and typically you don't really see a lot of predominantly hyperactive unless it's a really little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you typically only see like combined or inattentive. And we were taught, and this is what a lot of the research shows, that girls are more likely to present with a predominantly inattentive presentation. So girls are more like the space cadets or the daydreamers. Um, but then it's hard to, I think, draw that conclusion when the criteria were developed for boys. Um, so we're really limiting the scope of what's being um, understood for girls and women and the way that ADHD presents because you know, you could be spacing out, but also when I was having this conversation with a client actually not too long ago, it's like when I sit still, I feel like there are bugs crawling under my skin. Mm-hmm. Like I can do it, but I'm dying inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not visible. Uh, and so girls are really complicated. Um, and so that's why, you know, there really needs to be more work in this area. So interesting. And then I think also adding to that or contributing to that, and I know you talk about this as well, is the fact that girls are really good at masking, right? They're good at being compliant in school and doing things that they're supposed to do and falling in line to your point, even when it's super uncomfortable on the inside. Um, And I know that that also has led to girls being underdiagnosed, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, like, so the the research shows that both girls and women have better social skills than boys and men, and that makes sense. I used to study uh, peer relationships, friendships, um, a few years ago, and so one of kind of the most well known things about girls' friendships versus boys' friendships is that um, girls tend to have like more intimate, um, dyadic, like one on one relationships. Uh, whereas boys tend to hang out more like in groups um, and their their friendships are more about just kind of like play, <laughs> like spending mm-hmm. time together, hanging out. Um, it's considered like, you know, like less like intimate, uh, but that doesn't mean they don't have close friendships. It's just sure. that it, it manifests in a different way. Sure. Um, but because, you know, girls are, you know, just physiologically. Uh, and also raised, you know, socially, uh, yeah. environmentally different than boys. Um, the f- girls' friendships are way more complicated. Um, so girls tend to be sneakier. And, um, you know, when you're thinking about like bullying, for instance, um, girls' victimization includes more than just, uh, physical. Uh, mm-hmm. so girls typically don't get physical. I mean, they, they can. But it's mostly like relational, like they'll gossip about each other, spread yeah. rumors, exclude each other. Um, and all of that takes social skills. <laughs> like you have to have a really good ability to have, you know, perspective taking and how to socially manipulate things in your environment. Um, and so lately, there's been a lot of work on masking for girls with ASD. Um, and I think that ADHD falls under the same category with autism spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. and they're so highly uh, comorbid, or they happen, you know, at the same time for a lot of people. Um, and we're behind on understanding the same thing for girls and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's important to recognize. And in addition to the ADHD, ASD. Um, you know, I also want to talk a little bit about because our listeners are high achieving women who are, you know, doing it all. And many like myself have gone through situations where we're encountering burnout and, and experiencing physical manifestations of stress because we are not taking care of ourselves, right? We're not doing the things that we need to do because we're so focused on everyone else. And it's just so common. Um, you know, and, and obviously we recognize that something's got to change, something's got to give. And, and, you know, certainly that's also another complicated issue that's multifaceted. Um, but I, you know, anxiety is one that keeps coming up and it's one that I have struggled with one that I, again, I hear a lot of clients and, and other women deal with, and especially post COVID, right? I think there's, we still have a lot of work to do. I think there's less stigma around mental health in general. I think more people are open about getting support. Um, you know, and I think we're we're seeing, especially since COVID, I, I think an increase in, in anxiety and other mental health disorders. But I'm curious from your perspective and your practice, what do you see as current trends or challenges in mental health specifically with um, women and then also children these days? Yeah, so I think, you know, on, other aspects of ADHD that are very interesting for women um, are a lot of the things that you're describing. 
So I am a high achieving woman. I mean, mm. I'm 34 and I have two kids. My oldest is six. And um, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I also have a separate master's degree in experimental psychology. I'm writing a book. Um, I'm going to start blogging for a magazine. I'm doing this. You know, it's like we're constantly like juggling all yes. of these balls. Yes. Um, and it's like this need to fill a void. But then once you accomplish one goal, you're like ready to move on to the next one. Um, and I see it as like um, dopamine searching, basically, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so a lot of women with ADHD who have low, level, low levels of dopamine in their brain. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter, which is like a chemical in your brain that makes you feel good motivated, uh, fulfilled, um, just happy. Uh, and it's associated with a lot of stuff like depression, ADHD symptoms, migraines, even um, a lot. Uh, but basically, uh, when you get a dopamine kick, you know, it's like, you feel really good in the moment. So when you achieve something, then, you know, there's a lot of dopamine <laughs> that's being released in your yeah. brain. Um, and people with ADHD have naturally lower levels of that. So they're trying to compensate and they're filling their plates, you know, like I'll talk to, you know, especially moms now because, uh, women, our generation, like they are getting diagnosed very late with ADHD because yeah. there was so little knowledge of it. And also because of the stigma and there still is stigma surrounding it. Sure. Um, but uh, you know, for example, like they'll say like, oh, but I'm doing all these things and I'm so successful, you know, but are you happy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and then why are you doing all of these things? Um, just because you're doing a lot doesn't mean you don't have ADHD. You know, you could be intelligent and have ADHD, too. Um, and you're really just kind of seeking out uh, things to do to compensate for, you know, the low stimulation that you have on the inside. So fascinating. And I think you just perfectly described so many high achieving women, especially the working moms. And as you know, you're doing it all, right? Your <laughs> school, education, work, right. writing a book, right? At raising kids and doing it all very successfully. And I think that also is, is a stereotype, right? That people with ADHD or other mental health disorders are not successful. Yeah. yeah. They can't function. Right. And we know that that's just not true. And I love yeah. what you said about like, why are you doing all these things in the work that I do in, in my keynotes, I talk about this concept of the arrival fallacy, right? We're chasing the next goal. And mm -hmm. once we get there, once we climb that peak, we don't just stop and say relish in our accomplishments and our mm -hmm. achievements and really celebrate what we did and take a step back. No, we we're we we haven't taken a moment to celebrate because we're already on to the next goal. We're already on to the next exactly step, right. Yeah. And so yeah, so I think that's such an important point. And then taking a step back to question like why? What is that drive? Is it truly internal and heart centered? Is it the chemicals in our brain? Right? What is it that's really driving um, that desire to achieve and accomplish? Yeah. I think for me, just learning more about the chemicals in our brain, it just normalized it for me yeah. and it took the pressure off. You know, it was just like, listen, there's a, you know, a biological reason for what mm -hmm. I'm experiencing right now. I can explain it 
Um, and then it's not about me failing, you know, it's about just the way I function and just, you know, I think education is power, like knowing, you know, why your body is doing what it's doing. And that's why I actually spend a lot of time in the beginning, uh, providing psychoeducation to my patients. And the other thing I do is, um, like if my patients come in and they're like, Hey, I'm taking this medication. I'm just like, do you know why you're taking that medication? No. Um, so I'm like, mm-hmm. let me educate you. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. not a psychiatrist and I say, talk to your psychiatrist about this too. Sure. But I think it's important to know why you're prescribed, what you're prescribed and, you know, to, to understand what it's doing, like when you're taking it. So, yeah. yeah. You also talked about fulfillment, which I think is another important point to this is, you know, when we accomplish something, are we truly achieving that inner sense of accomplishment, um, you know, and fulfillment, or are we doing it for some external reason, you know, to Mm -hmm. get the validation, the reward, the accolades. Um, And I think also pausing to recognize, like, what does this mean to me is can also be really powerful as opposed to just keep going in that cycle. It's like the hamster wheel. So, so Mm -hmm. getting off the wheel and stopping and pausing and really taking, you know, time to reflect and be introspective when it comes to what are we accomplishing and and why are we doing it, I think can be really important. Um, You know, you talked about women struggling with ADHD and, you know, anxiety. I'm curious, what would you say? I mean, obviously, other than a clinical diagnosis, right, what are some signs or things that women should look out for or sort of be more sensitive to or in tune to, um, you know, if, if they suspect ADHD? Um, so I think in this day and age, like in this generation, it's probably going to start with you taking your daughter to a psychologist because that's what I see just with a lot of patients. There's no mental health history. Um, and then they bring their kids in and they're like, here, fix my child. Mm. Um, but I would say, you know, whatever feedback you're getting about your kid, like turn that around and think about yourself too, because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and it's not a bad thing. You know, like we need to get rid of this preconception of like, you know, if you have a mental health diagnosis, um, it's, it's a bad thing or you're, you know, messed up in some way. Like. It's just like, you know, understanding that you have low iron levels. Um, mm-hmm. Are you just going to stay in the dark or, you know, are you going to go treat it? So, you know, if you take your kid in for therapy and the therapist says, well, I think your child is struggling with um, ADHD or um, OCD or um, autism, mm-hmm. and then you take them in for testing and it's like confirmed then um, you should probably go ask your primary care physician, uh, like consult with another professional and really think about um, your past so you could start addressing your challenges. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's it's almost like a mirror. And I've noticed that in so many facets of parenthood and becoming a mother, right? And just doing that self-reflection. So such a great point, right? And and when you're learning more about your child, it's also an opportunity for you to learn more about you, yourself, yourself yeah. right? And because I think also we, when we were growing up, things were very different, times were very different, you know, mental health isn't 
what it is today. And so take that as an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits, right, of being neurodivergent and not being neurotypical? Yeah. So, so there's, there were a couple things that I thought of when you were talking about, um, you know, kind of checking the boxes and accomplishing goals, but then mm -hmm. still feeling empty and wanting yeah. to move on to the next thing and working toward um, getting praise uh, or recognition for what yeah. you do. And um, people, so this is an under-recognized piece of ADHD, um, especially for women. It's the emotion dysregulation part of it. No. Um, so emotions are not even part of the criteria. And if you think about it, it makes sense. If the criteria were developed for little boys, like if you're observing boys, then, um, you know, they, they might be rowdy and, but you can't really tell. Um, and even with girls, like you can't look at them and be like, ah, oh, this girl's depressed. I mean, maybe you can, uh, but it's much more complicated than that. And yeah. the same brain areas involved in impulsivity and inattention and, you know, the uh, ADHD diagnoses are the ones involved in emotion regulation as well. Um, and so there's um, a neurological, like a neurobiological component to it as well. Um, and so the, you know, the emotional piece is very important. Mm -hmm. And there's this term that was popularized by William Dodson, uh, who's a psychiatrist, it's rejection sensitive dysphoria. Um, and there's very little research on it. Uh, but basically, a lot of people, since it became like very popular, a lot of people with ADHD have sort of come out and said like, Oh, yeah, I struggle with that. Um, and there needs to be more research in that area. But rejection sensitive dysphoria is basically this heightened sensitivity to perceived criticism. Mm. But it also goes the other way. It's also heightened sensitivity to praise. So if wow. you feel like you failed at something, um, then it like is so painful that people who have this, they report feeling this like intense pain in their chest. Um, and I do. Um, I'm all on board <laughs> with like, with looking at this more because even if it's the stupidest thing, um, I can get so upset about it and it physically hurts. Um, but on the flip side, if I succeed at something, it's like manic. <laughs> You're mm -hmm. like on cloud nine. Yes. Um, and you, there's a chance that people with ADHD, experience this more, you know, like more intensely in people who are neurotypical. Um, and so it's likely that people with ADHD just feel very deeply, you know, they're just very empathetic. I know I've seen a lot of um, teens um, who are autistic and they are very sensitive to emotional content yeah. because they feel the emotion so intensely. Yes. Um, and that's what makes it hard to process. Um, yeah. so, you know, we feel very deeply. The other, um, pro is, um, hyper-focus and all of these are not included in the criteria. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so hyper-focus is basically when you're so interested in something like 
for me, it's psychology. I mean, it almost seems like I'm obsessed, you know, like my husband will walk into the kitchen. It's like my, my day off and I'm listening to Russell Barkley on YouTube. Like <laughs> this is fun for me, you know, and he, he doesn't get it. Like sometimes he doesn't get it. Like he'll be like, um, <laughs> like it's all you can talk about. And I'm just like, because I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, and I think that's, um, a benefit because you can really become an expert in your field yeah. and because you're so passionate about what you do and that's where the fulfillment comes in with mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. Like I just love being a psychologist. So it's about finding your thing. Uh, but then, you know, the con of that is the con of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Con. Um, so the con of that is that, you know, when you have to do something you're not interested in, um, honestly, it's like I, I black out. Like my husband talks to me about history and he looks at me and he's just like, you didn't hear anything. I just said, <laughs> <laughs> like, you just can't process the information. But when you're interested in something, you're like all in. Yes. So interesting. And it's, thank you for sharing that. I think the hyper-focus and recognizing the deeply feeling aspects I think is important for people to recognize and that there, there are terms and there are, there is research, right. That supports and evidence that supports this, because I think sometimes we feel so alone. We feel like we're the only person going through something, or we feel like we're the only person experiencing something. And the reality is we're not. The reality is that there's a lot of people going through the same things, having the same experiences and feelings. And sometimes just hearing that can normalize it for people and recognizing it and being able to be to be vocal about it and getting the support that, um, you know, they need. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's those are really great things to be aware of. Tell us about I know you said you're working on a book. I would love to know. Do you want to share a little bit more with our listeners about your book and when we'll be able to get our hands on it? Okay. It's going to be a while um, because I'm going the traditional publishing route and um, that's a slow move. But at the same time, you know, I'm a debut author. And so this is what I'm just choosing to do in the beginning. So I'm working with a literary agent with the Weiss Agency and um, we are together going to uh, propose. I don't know, it might be out, I guess, for submission by the time this is coming mm -hmm. out. Um, but we're working on proposing a book on uh, the role of rejection-sensitive dysphoria and emotion dysregulation in ADHD for women. Awesome. That sounds so exciting. And I can tell you're so passionate and lit up about the work that you do, and I can't wait to read it. Um, Dr. Gilly, what message or call to action do you have for our audience? Any other tips or tools that you would like to share? Yeah, so I thought, you know, the other thing I think that's really important to, I guess, to send as like a take home is just involves anxiety because uh, I, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the listeners um, are probably overwhelmed and um, they're, they're high achieving. I mean, they have a lot on their plate um, and a lot of times that can manifest as physical discomfort. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't know that, too, that yeah. anxiety can appear physically. Um, but I, a lot of times, you know, people will come into therapy and I work at Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta. So 
we're anxiety specialists. Um, so when you, they come into therapy, they'll basically say, you know, like, I would like a coping toolkit um, or coping tools to get rid of or reduce my anxiety. Uh, but our brain is kind of messed up in its own way. Because the more we try to control or get rid of something that happens naturally, the more it backfires. Mm. Um, so if let's say like we're having a panic attack and we're just like, okay, deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation, like let me relax my muscles. What can I do to get rid of this feeling? It can only amplify <laughs> because the goal is to get rid of the anxiety. And so that's why I spend a lot of time in the beginning of therapy, um, educating clients about how anxiety is actually helpful. So, you know, it's kind of like how we said before, like, conceptualizing things as less of a disorder, and more yeah. a condition, sure. um, you know, your body does things. Um, because we are designed in a way that helps us survive. Mm -hmm. um, and so anxiety exists for a good reason. It's really to protect us. Uh, but sometimes um, our brain can get confused and make us think that a situation is like dangerous or threatening when it's actually safe. Um, and so a lot of my work with clients has to do with very similar to what I think you talk about in your book. So a lot of it is acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's about just kind of, you know, accepting whatever feeling you're having right. includes a lot of mindfulness, um, goal setting and focusing on what matters to you. Um, but the flip side of that, and people think it's like crazy that we do this, but is exposure therapy or exposure response prevention. Yeah. Because if you're not, um, you know, just accepting or kind of going with the flow, then the the other side of it, and I'll usually start with ACT, and then if that doesn't help, then I start moving into exposure therapy, uh, because that's more of like a bring it on attitude. Mm -hmm. Like, oof, you know, anxiety is chasing me around, it's hunting me down, you know what? I'm going to be the hunter now. So bring on the anxiety. Mm. So it's really flipping things on its head, and it's seeking out anxiety as opposed to having it control you. Um, so I guess like my message is be the hunter, not the hunty. I love it and get curious with it, right? It's such valuable insights. So the same is true about, you know, traumas from our past or, you know, negative experiences that we haven't processed. And a lot of times we suppress them because we've learned to suppress uncomfortable emotions. And what happens? It just continues to grow. Exactly. It continues to get worse. And so until you're able to sit with the discomfort and process the uncomfortable feelings, it is just going to continue to fester. And so such great advice. I love it. Um, and I think it's, it's so powerful for people to recognize, you know, we, we actually have power, more power than we believe. And we can take action to help ourselves. And also, of course, seek external support, which is so important. Dr. Gilly, thanks so much for being here and sharing your insights and expertise. Where can our listeners find more about you and the work that you do? 
Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Gilly Khan. Um, I'm also on TikTok. Um, and then I will be posting stuff on there with more podcast episodes and blogs and things to come uh, because I have a bunch of stuff that's in the works. Awesome. I love your content. So keep it coming. And of course, you can visit my website at gialacqua.com. Reach out to me on Instagram at gialacqua with thoughts, feedback, comments, and questions on this topic and what you'd like to hear about on future episodes. This is Gia signing off with gratitude for your time and energy. Our mic drops, but the movement continues. Until next time, your next chapter is waiting. That concludes another empowering episode of Your Future Starts Now. Before we wrap up, I want to thank this incredible community of high-achieving women. Your energy, resilience, and commitment to growth are the driving force behind what we do. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate it, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Your feedback fuels our mission to empower high-achieving women just like you. And of course, share Your Future Starts Now with the extraordinary women in your life who are also on a journey of healing and empowerment. Connect with us on social media, share your thoughts, let us know what topics you'd like to explore in future episodes. Stay connected on Instagram at Gia I encourage you to carry the energy of this conversation into your day and keep on supporting the incredible women around you. Until next time, remember, your next chapter is waiting.